O God, my heart is steadfast. We will sing and give praise even with your glory, with our glory. Awake, lute and harp. Awake in the dawn. Let us, let us praise you, O Lord, among all the peoples. Let us sing praises to you among the nations. For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. For to all the saints in Jesus Christ, along with the elders and the deacons, grace to you from, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we come before you. We ask that you who have called us here to this place and set before us coming before your word, we ask that you would take the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, and make them acceptable praise in your sight. For you are God. You are the one who has redeemed us. Receive us and our praises, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. For scripture reading and for scripture references, I'd like to turn to chapter 19 of Proverbs, just verse 5. A false witness shall not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies will not escape. So Solomon there is commenting on the catechism. Well, not on the catechism, on the commandments. He's saying, when God said, I am the God of truth, I expect all of you who follow me to be truthful. In fact, if you're going to be like me, you will be truthful. There won't be any possibility of a difference. Uh, you will always tell the truth. If I went to 1 Peter, and in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23... First Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So Jesus is saying to us there, my understanding of the commandment is that you will not only tell the truth, but you will also apply the truth. You're interested in seeing what the truth is. That means you don't listen to somebody and say, well, he said this, therefore it must be true. Before you come to an opinion, you need to check it out. You need to deal with it. Perhaps seek other advice and certainly seek scripture. You may not like the precedent we have been given. I personally do not. But I listen to what he says, and I compare what he says to the word of God, and I say, this is not what God said he should be doing. Other than that, I don't think I have anything I can say about him. I can't say whether he's a good husband. I can't say whether he's retarded. I can't say all any of those things. I can't even say that it was a mistake that he was made president. Because since God is in control of all things, including the elections in the United States, uh, that means that he put that man there for a purpose. And so I need to say to the Lord, Lord, bring your purpose to bear on this man. Even if I don't like what he's doing, even if I don't think it's good for the nation, uh, you have a plan. And that plan is good. Therefore, bring to bear what you have said you are going to do. 
that I bear false witness against no one, twist no one's words, be no backbiter or slanderer, and join in condemning no one unheard or rashly. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So if I take these things and I don't seek the truth and I don't try to, to, to understand the truth and I report something that isn't quite true, I mean, after all, what's the commandment? The commandment is not that you should not lie. The commandment is that you should not bear false witness. Any lie is a false witness, mind you. But a false witness could also be, well, I heard this, and I think it's true, but I don't know. Or, I'm sure this is true, and I'm wrong. So when we testify, and when we talk about others, and when we talk about not only what is going on in our world, but what's going on in our families, the object is that we understand as much as we can, and that we take that before God, and we seek to do what God would do with it. So, what do you do? Somebody yells at you on the road, uh, and he thinks you cut him off, and he's mad, and he starts yelling and screaming, do you pull out a gun? If you're in Los Angeles, probably, but not here. <laughs> in fact, nowhere should you. Maybe I did do cut somebody off. Maybe I should be yelled at. And certainly, if somebody's yelling at me, I should look carefully at what I did and find out whether I should be. And if I am not supposed to be yelled at, then I can simply say to him, I'm sorry, but it's not what I did. And not try to get back at him. So revenge is also taken out of the way by this. You'll notice that in God's commandments, there's a considerable amount of... a uh, certain amount of relationship. So the commandments talk about something and two of them may apply or three of them may apply. If I went to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and particularly verse 6, it's a little out of context because it starts in the middle of a sentence. Does not rejoice in iniquity but rejoices in the truth. So what we're supposed to be doing is telling the truth Believing the truth, rejoicing in the truth, and anything that isn't the truth, we're supposed to be letting it go, or con contradicting it and disciplining it. Now, before you say, Jay, you pulled that out of context, you're absolutely right. But the context is, this is what agape love looks like. A love that says, other people, all other people, are more important to me than I am to myself. That's what agape means. So when it says, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it means that you will, with every part of your being, consider God more important to you than you are to yourself. And so if God says somebody needs to be disciplined according to his word, then even if they're going to hate you, or punish you, or shoot you, you're willing to do it. Because his word and he are more important to you than you are to yourself. And before you say, Jay, that's just un impossible, I think you probably ought to look at the cross. Because there, Jesus on the cross is demonstrating to us that in the second person of the Trinity, God considered us, those he was dying for, more important to him than he was to himself. 
So he endured the, par- the terrors of hell for us. More important to him than we are to ourselves. And that's how we are supposed to treat others in the world. That's how we're supposed to treat everyone around us. And there, of course, the commandment is going a little bit beyond what we thought we would have in a commandment about you will not uh, bear false witness. Let's go one more place. To the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Do not judge according to appearance. So how do you do that? I don't see anybody in that condition in this congregation. But at one point, uh, Paul was talking about the church and said, no, if somebody comes into this church uh, and he's dressed like a bum and he smells like he hasn't bathed in months, uh, and you say to him, go stand over there by the window, and somebody comes in who's well-dressed and looks like he's got money, you say, here, I have a chair right here for you, or a place right beside me. What are you doing? As the epistle says, you're judging with unrighteous judgment. You're looking at somebody and say, what I see on the outside is what's on the inside. Can that be true? Well, it might be. But I'm going to be willing to guess that most of us are willing to say very nice things to people uh, in church and very nice things to people who are our friends, but uh, then perhaps uh, not say quite so many nice things when they're not around. And the commandment says... That's not Christian behavior. So the commandment was that I bear no false witness against anyone, twist no one's words, be no backbiter or slanderer, that I will not bear false witness in anything. And there's one other false witness that you need to be aware of. What are you? What am I? Some people may look and say, You're a pastor. Therefore, you're good. Don't bet on it. I have as many sins as you do and probably a few you can't imagine. That's because I know what I'm supposed to be. But being honest and showing all of those things and not having any of those things that I'm not supposed to be is part of this commandment. It requires righteousness in my life, in my actions, and in my words that far I'd like to ask you to turn in the scripture with me to a scripture reading I am conscious that sometimes I do things a little differently than others I don't know what uh, normally scripture reading is supposed to be in your concept but you may notice that oftentimes the scripture readings that I choose are from the book of Romans the book of Romans is the systematic theology of the New Testament in fact, of the scripture. And the way I'm preaching to you is not preaching verse by verse through a book, but I'm preaching from topics, taking the topic, exegeting the topic, uh, and I want you to understand that it fits into the rest of scripture. And so here, from Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. 
That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah, who also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. And it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it, as, it, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And as we get into the sermon, you'll see where this is tying in. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it, is, then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man... Who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to the one who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. For he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people. I will call her beloved, who, is not my be- who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Now Isaiah cried out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it in short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Isaiah had said before, Unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. That far. Oh, I said 32. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written. I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. As I believe I said to you on a couple of occasions before, just because the passage of Scripture is long doesn't mean the sermon is short. Seminary class, they told you that, probably warned you, the shorter the passage, the longer the sermon. Not necessarily. I'd like to begin in John chapter 4. I'd like to begin with the first verse and read through verse 42 of the chapter. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples did, 
He left Judah, Judea, and departed to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus responded and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up to to everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. In that you have spoken truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, and He... At this point, his disciples came back, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said to him, What are you seeking? Or why are you talking to her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, the disciples were saying to him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. The disciples said to one another, Has somebody else brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages, and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this saying is true, one sows and another reaps. 
I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Now many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. That far as we read from God's word. Samaria. I suppose a little background is necessary. Samaria is a geographical division of Palestine. Once it was part of Israel, it was the northern kingdom. It was separated from Judah under Rehoboam and Jeroboam. It was conquered by Assyria, depopulated, repopulated by others about 722 B.C. The Assyrian attempt to conquer Judah was defeated miraculously by God. Uh, seems to me the army uh, of, of more than 200,000 uh, went to bed one night and woke up with 185,000 of them dead. That was in Hezekiah's day. Now Judah would go to Babylon into captivity and return from there about 586, about 500 B.C. They went to captivity in 586 B.C. When Judah returned home from the captivity, the people that Assyria had put in the land up there, others, had uh, decided they liked being there, were used to it by now, and they tried to join with the Jews. Jews were rebuilding Jerusalem, they thought maybe they could get some help in rebuilding part of their country and they'd be part of this nation and maybe the nation together would be bigger and stronger and more important. So they tried to join them. And when the Jews said no, they tried to stop the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And the adversity did not end until after 70 AD. They hated each other. In Jesus' day, Judea, the land that was the kingdom of Judah, was Jewish. Samaria was not. It had something that was supposed to be partly Jewish because when the Assyrians had conquered uh, the God sent lions among the people and the people sent back to the king and said, uh, the lions are killing us and we can't stop them. The uh, problem is we don't know the gods of this land and you have to send somebody to tell us about the gods of this land so we can worship them and they'll stop the lions. So he sent them a pastor, a prophet, a teacher, a priest, a priest of the northern kingdom's version of worshiping Jehovah. That meant that the what they were being taught was there were two idols that you went to worship. And those idols were actually the invisible God. Well, not quite. But Jeroboam had made two golden calves. One was in Bethel in the south and one was in Dan in the north. And you went to one or the other and you worshipped there. Because Jeroboam had said, if the people don't, if they keep going back to Jerusalem to worship, then they'll rebel against me and they'll go back to Rehoboam and I'll get killed. So i got to keep that from happening. That animosity stayed around. It stayed around so much that in Jesus' day, if you were a 
Orthodox Jew or trying to be Orthodox, you avoided Samaria at all costs. If you were going to Passover or one of the other sacrifices, and you lived in Galilee. Now, Galilee was another section of Palestine. There was Judah in the south, Samaria in the middle, and Galilee up in the north. And it had been pretty well unpopulated. But when Judea began to grow again, the Jews went around Samaria and up and settled in Galilee. So when the Galilean Jews wanted to come down to Jerusalem, they decided that they would cross the Jordan River at the base of the Sea of Galilee, and they would come down on the east bank, and they would cross at Jericho and go up to Jerusalem. And you can see that happening in the New Testament. Some of them hedged it a little bit, and they would just walk very close to the Jordan River and go down to Jerusalem, and then up to Jericho, and then up. Some of them even went to the other side of the coast and walked up along the water of the sea, and then went down to Jerusalem that way. The one thing that they didn't want to do was to walk through Samaria. Because according to the rabbis, if you bumped into somebody in the marketplace or on the road who happened to be unrighteous, then you were unclean. And you couldn't go to the sacrifices. And in fact, you should go home, you should take a bath, wash your clothes, and be unclean for a day. So you didn't do this. You didn't go through Samaria. But that was the shortest route. And that was the route that most of the Jews who took it didn't really care about what the clarity was, clear what it was to be free from that kind of contamination. But it's interesting in this passage that something else happens. So I want to give you my three points. First, in verses 1 to 6, Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Now, Jesus is ultra-Orthodox, absolutely righteous. Hmm. Second point is, the woman meets Jesus. And the third point is her conversion and her witness. In the first six verses. When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. A little bit of a confusion there. When the Master knew that Jesus made more baptized, made had heard that the Pharisees knew that Jesus made more baptized, more and more disciples and baptized than John did. Uh, so Jesus knows that the Pharisees are blaming Jesus. Notice the distinction. Okay. Jesus is called Adonai, Lord, as close as the Jews would get to using God's name. And the Pharisees used Jesus. Because the Pharisees were looking at the incarnate Christ and not seeing the divine Christ. So when the Pharisees heard that Jesus was baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus didn't, but his disciples did, Jesus departed again to Galilee. So he left the area. He left the area because, as it says, my time has not come. It's not time to set this up. And we'll see that a little bit later, but I want to just emphasize it now. Uh, all of this incarnation, okay, Jesus has not only planned, but he's ratcheting up the anger and the frustration and the animosity between the unconverted Jews and himself. He's ratcheting it up to the place where they are ready to crucify him. 
So it's looking like Satan is winning until the veil's temple in the veil of the temple is torn. And that's deliberate on Jesus' part. It's what God has planned from before the foundation of the world. But verse 4 is the one that's most interesting to me here. He needed to go through Samaria. Needed? It was the shortest distance. He's not young anymore, but he's only in his 30s. Uh, And he does a lot of teaching, so he doesn't sleep as well as making might otherwise. But uh, he could have gone across the Jordan River and gone up that way. He could have waded through the Mediterranean. He could have walked on the water, for that matter. Why does he need to go through Samaria? I want to propose to you. And I'll try to show it to you in a little bit. He needed to because that was what his father and he had determined was going to be his job. He had, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, God, had set up an appointment there in Sychar with someone who didn't have any idea that she was the appointment. But before the foundation of the world, he had planned this meeting and he had planned her conversion. So in order to keep the plan that God had made and that he'd been part of and making that plan, he had to go through Samaria. He had to get there at the right time of the day to meet the woman who had no idea that she was the object. wasn't like they had made an agreement. I'll meet you here at that time. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar. It's near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to Joseph, his son, and Jacob's well was there. Jesus, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. It was about the sixth hour. You want to read some boring stuff? I can show you several pages of uh, reasons for why it has to be one time of the day or the other time of the day. Uh, I am of the opinion that it was sixth hour would be noon. And I do that because it was the heat of the day. And if you're going to go and take a, a heavy clay jar worth about 20 gallons of water and you're going to carry that out of the town to the well go down a hundred steps because that was the depth of the well approximately and you're going to fill that jug and you're going to climb up those hundred steps and you're going to walk back into town in the heat of the day you're nuts except if all the other people in the town go out at the evening hour when it's cooler and they don't like you, and you don't want them to have anything to say about you. They don't, you don't want to hear them persecuting you and prosecuting you. Because this woman is not someone you would look at as a paragon of virtue. Okay? So she's trying to avoid other people. So she comes out when she's pretty sure there won't be any other people there. But there is. Jesus had sat down by the well. She came out to draw water. And Jesus said to her, and notice how he says it, give me a drink. He doesn't say, please give me a drink. He doesn't say, if you're so kind, would you give me a drink? It's an order. Give me a drink. Uh, This is a Samaritan. Jesus is obviously a Jew. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So here's Jesus. And he's given this woman an order. I said to you earlier, Jesus sat down by the well. 
He didn't do so because he was tired, although there was some fatigue in his incarnation. He did so because this was the purpose. He knew what the trip was going to be. He chose the trip. He chose the place to stop. He knew who he was going to meet. And he knew what the trip was going to do. As I suggested, this was predestined. He had appointed it before the foundation of the world and he had set it to bring the conversion of this woman. Now in John chapter 2, verse 4, and in John chapter 7, we look at him and he's sitting here and he's not preaching other type places and he's not doing this in a great public, public arena. You know he's done miracles before and he's had lots of people watching. He's even made sure that the disciples aren't there so it's just him and the woman. That's because in John 2.4 and in John 7.3 his response to challenges like this is my hour had not yet come. Now, yeah, that's absolutely true. For more reasons than one. And the primary reason, in my opinion, is God and I planned this hour. Okay? And God planned this part of the hour and there's no spectators because that's what he wanted. If I went to Psalm 139 for just a minute and read a couple of verses there, beginning at verse 16. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days that were fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand, and when I wake, I am still with you. God says that's not just true of the woman. It's not just true of Jesus. It's true of all of us. Okay? God planned our days and all of the things in our days, and that's underlying all of what this sermon's about. Okay? The predestination of God, and how God is in command of this. He has planned it for His glory, and this is going to come up and it's going to do something that nobody would have thought was possible. God has planned our salvation too. The time, the place, just as He has planned hers. In all of this, God, God's will, that is His plan, from before the foundation of the world, will be there. If I can give you an example from John chapter 17 and verse 30. Therefore they sought to take Him, but no one laid a hand on Him, because His hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in Him, said, When Christ comes, will He do more signs than this man? If I went back to Jeremiah... Chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. It wasn't just Jeremiah. It's not just the important people. This is God's providence, His plan, His decree. Uh, I've used the example before. Uh, It's kind of like you go to a movie where you turn on the TV set and you're watching a show. What happens in the show or in the, in the play that's on, on stage? Exactly what the author wanted. Every step, every entrance, every exit, every move that's made, every word that's spoken is planned. So we have a rather cheap picture of what God has done. Okay? Every action is planned. 
And if you want to get frustrated with me and say, well, how is that fair when we read it in Romans 9? God says, this is my world, this is how I work, this is how I do things. I will honor those whom I honor. I will use those who I will use. I will frustrate those who I intend to discipline. Okay? All of that in Romans 9. So if you want a defense, I plead, read Romans 9. It's his word, not mine. God has prepared all our hurts, all our joys, all our successes, all our jobs, all our exam grades, all our spouses, all our teachers, all the events of history, His will. Nothing has happened to you in your lifetime. Nothing, as a matter of fact, has happened in the world that God did not plan. Don't ask me why God planned all of them. I can give you only one answer. For His glory. Why beyond that? I haven't got a clue. But all of the things that God has done have been to build up His glory. That is, after all, why we refer to history with that word. If you just uh, take a little space, put an a, a space there after the first S, and then put another S in after the space, history is His story. It's what He's determined, what He's written, what He's planned. So God has planned all the tests that He sends to us, as well as all the encouragements. So you may think that uh, your Ill- injury or your cancer, you may think that your being fired from a job, you may think that you're losing money, you may think that your car accident are accidents. They're all tests that God has said, sent to build your sanctification, to build His glory. They're all His work, as well as all the benefits and blessings. All of them are His work. So He doesn't send you all disappointments. He sends you blessings too. To remind you that He is there and He's encouraging you. And He has something for you yet to go. Including heaven. If I can move to the second point. Now a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For His disciples had gone away to buy food. And the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who said to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. First thing you want to see in this is the woman is trying to shut him up. He said, Give me a drink. I don't want to give you a drink. You wouldn't be nice to us. I'm not going to be nice to you. And Jesus begins to shut her down. He's not listening to her objections. He would have given you living water. Now the woman said to him, she's still trying to change the subject. Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well? literally dug the well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and livestock. Are you greater than Jacob? Jacob had to dig the well to get down to the water. What are you going to do? Jacob had to arrange to have it brought up. What are you going to do? You don't even have a pot to bring it up in. What kind of nut are you? She's trying to say to him, "Uh, take a hike. Jesus isn't going on any hikes. 
Jesus answered and said to him, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, but the water that I will give to him will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor have to come here to draw. Boy, that would be a wonderful thing. I know it's not possible. So I'm saying, all right, you say you can do it, do it. You're nuts. She's trying to put him down again. And he's not going anywhere. The woman said, give me this water so that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus, instead of responding to that particular one, pushes her. He said, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. First time she said something gentle and honest. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. You've had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. You spoke truly in that. So he's telling her what she's been and what she's done. Demonstrates why she's not liked by the other women in town. Uh, Maybe liked by the men in town for all the wrong reasons. We're not sure exactly what he means by that. She may have been divorced five times. She may have uh, been living with somebody. She may have been a prostitute. We're not sure what is intended. The text isn't sure. But it didn't matter. Whatever it was, the people in town looked at her and said, you don't want to be around this person. And so they would give her a hard time. That's why she came out at noon when the sun was high. And she's carried that big water pitcher and she's suffering through that saying, boy, it's really tough. But it's better to be able to do this alone and sweat than to have all those people making fun of me. Or it's being nastier than making fun. You've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Now you'd think at that point that she would kind of give up. But the woman says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, she didn't know him. She'd never met him. There's only one way he could have known that. Either he'd been reading the gossip column or he was a prophet and God had told him this stuff. And they had enough sense from the Samaritan Pentateuch that there were prophets and also from their their, uh, pagan religions. I perceive you're a prophet. Since he's a Jew, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. She's trying to change the subject. You're getting too close to home. You're calling me down for my sins. I want to talk about a different subject. I want to argue with you at the place where we're worshipping because you prophets say that we're in the wrong place. Jesus said to her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. For you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now she tries one last time to change the subject. Oh, well, I know that Messiah is coming and this is a debate that's going to have to be solved by Him when He comes. Uh, where are we worshipping? What are we worshipping? Somebody else is going to have to do this. We can't do this today and I don't want to do it anymore. 
And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. That dumps all of her attempts. What she's actually done is she is saying to him, we need a prophet to explain this to us. He said, you have one. He's here. He's talking to you. And he's already explained it to you. Neither of the worship places are the places where God would be worshipped. There are no places at all where God is uniquely worshipped. I'd like to say that. Boy, if there were, we could go live there and we'd be in great shape. But worship is of the soul and the heart, not of the place you're sitting. It doesn't mean I don't think the church is a place to go to worship God. It just means that this isn't the only place to worship God. Around the dinner table would be a good place too. Uh, there may be other churches. There may be other denominations. No, there may be some denominations where you're not really worshiping God anymore. I have a good long argument about whether they are or not, but it's not for now. My interest is in that Jesus is setting up and has been setting up and holding this conversation with her and he's not going to let her go. That's called irresistible grace. He's not going to quit. He's going to keep going. He's going to keep going as she tries to get to get him to turn away. He forces her to break and he comes back to this to bring her to salvation. It's clear that God is not worshipped by magic or messengers, not in special places, but from men themselves. It's not idols that you stand in front of that get you in God's place. It's not saints that you go to and, and you're closer to God that way. It's not when you go hide in your closet that you're closer to God. It's not if you're in the right church or the right denomination. Please, I am a, delighted to be a member of the Reformed Church in the United States. I am Reformed in my theology, enough to scare most people. Uh, and uh, I'm not arguing about that at all. I'm just saying that that doesn't mean anything except that there I may hear the Word of God and His Spirit may force me, take me, to worship Him more clearly. It's the only thing it will do. And in order to worship Him, well, you can't do it even sitting in the pew. You remember John 3? Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God because nobody could do these things that God that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus says, gee, thanks. I'm glad you noticed. Jesus says, unless you are born from above, you won't even be able to see the kingdom of God. That wasn't the question Nicodemus was getting at. Jesus was telling Nicodemus, you're barking up the wrong tree. Here's what has to happen. Unless you are born by the Holy Spirit from above, there's no way you can see the kingdom of heaven. There's nothing you can do in yourself that will get you closer to God. It's God's Spirit that has to do it. And God's Spirit does it by changing you. And then you, in response to that change, take it up and begin to grow closer to God as the Holy Spirit gives you more strength and more growth each day. So Jesus is doing that. He's putting her in that position. You've been barking up the wrong tree thinking on Mount Gerizim is right. 
any more than the Jews are thinking that in Jerusalem is right. It's in the heart, wherever you are. Now, you really ought to do a couple of other things too. Jesus isn't really Jesus. That's a Greek word, Jesus. It's a Greek way of translating Joshua, just because the Greeks don't have the same words the Hebrews have, the same letters. Joshua was the salvation that Yahweh God provided. So Jesus is the salvation that God has sent. There's no other helper that's needed. There's no other ways that can do it. Jesus is the one. So when he says to her, I who stand before you, I'm talking to you. I'm the one. I can give you salvation. And I suppose we have to say at this point that the whole reason he told her that and the whole reason he was there was that he'd come to do that. So I'd like to move on to point three. Verse 27. At this point, accidentally, incidentally, at this point the disciples came back. And they marveled that he had talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what are you seeking? Or why are you talking to her? Uh, the Jews wouldn't have wanted to do that. They wouldn't want to know. They wouldn't want to have any idea why Jesus was talking to a Samaritan, let alone a Samaritan woman. Why would you want to do that? It's bad. It looks bad for your reputation, Jesus. You're flirting with a, with a prostitute? You're fir- flirting with somebody from, from a, a Samaritan? I mean, after all, you're a good Jew. Nobody dared. That's because by now at least, even if they didn't understand it, they knew he was different. But verse 28 is even more important. The woman left her water pot. She had come out of the city, carried his big heavy jug, to walk a hundred steps down into the, the well, to fill the jug, to walk up out of the steps, to walk back to the house, so she had water in the house for the rest of the day and the evening. The whole purpose of her going out there was that water jug. She didn't just forget it. The text says she left it there. She did it deliberately. Something has happened. Something has happened. She left it there deliberately. And she went her way into the city and she said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the anointed one, the Christ. Could this be the one that the Judaism promised? Could this be the one that the Samaritan Pentateuch promised? Could this be the one we're looking for? Could this be Messiah? What happened? Well, the Holy Spirit had worked. The Holy Spirit had changed her heart and her mind and now it was not important that she went back into town and avoided people. It was not important that she went back into town empty-handed. It was back that important that she went back into town with a message. Hey, somebody has come to town that we need to hear and we need to talk about. You need to listen to this guy. If he can tell me everything that I did, what can he tell you? Well, some of them may have come out and said, well, let's hear about this. There may be some things we want to know. But most of them came out and said, uh, how did you know her? Where do you come from? How were you able to know these things? And how were you able to change her from somebody who was trying to hide from us to somebody who came to look for us? Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Christ? 
And they went out of the city and they came to Him. So point three is her conversion and her witness. Her disciples come back. They see her. Uh, she's already been converted. And the disciples come back and the first thing they do is they sit down with Jesus and Jesus, the first thing she does is she goes back into town. She says, i got a message i got to take. There's somebody here you've got to listen to. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, eat. He said, I have food to eat you don't know anything about. That's true for two reasons. He could make it if he wanted to, but he's also human and divine. In the incarnation, if he goes 40 days without eating, it's not a real problem. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, to finish his work. Don't you say that there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you that lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they're already white to harvest. What? Huh. Harvest. The grain's ripe. It's ready to be taken, put away, stored, and used. So the first sheep of the harvest was the woman. And now the message is going into the Samaritan city of Sychar. And Jesus said, you say there's a long time before before the harvest. I'm telling you, uh, start it now. It's going to be in two days. We're going to be here two days. There's going to be a whole lot of witnessing done. There's going to be a whole lot of reaping done. And you thought you were in a field of weeds. But you're in a grain field. You thought because she was a Samaritan, and this is Samaritan territory, there were only weeds here. There aren't weeds here. You don't know what you're looking at. And this is his, the beginning of his, him saying to them, Look, I came to save those whom God had called to eternal life. I came to do that. And I sent you to do that, and I'm going to continue sending you to do that, because I want you to understand that this is what God has called you to do. And the example I'm using is her. I called her. She came. And the first thing she did was go out and tell others. Hmm. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him, in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. And that was impressive. This guy really knows the future. He's quite a prophet. He's quite a teller of fortunes, maybe. We want to know about him. So when the Samaritans came up to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Anointed One, the Savior of the world. Hmm. Let me ask you a question. If the newly converted ones, like the woman at the well, are eager to preach the gospel and to witness for it and show it, isn't it too often that we get complacent after a year or so? Stop in being interested in telling others about Christ, in showing others about Christ in our lives? in opening our homes to them, or in testifying to them by the way we help them in the neighborhood, or the way we care for them at work. 
Yeah, okay, that's the way he is, and we just kind of let it go. I suppose in Revelation 2.4 you could look at the church at Smyrna, and you could see there, uh, you have lost your first love. You've gotten complacent. The joy of being converted, and suddenly it's, well, yeah, that was years ago, and uh, it's not so exciting anymore. It's not so strange. Dare we become complacent? Who can be saved? Second point of application. Anyone God desires. Even a Samaritan woman of questionable morality. So if she can be saved, who should we not witness to? I had a teacher at seminary who did what I think is very unwise. But he decided to build a church by visiting the bars and talking to people in the bars and witnessing to them there. Not sure I'd recommend that for evangelism. But Jack Miller did. Tried. Uh, His point was, there aren't any people who are too far gone for God not to convert. Think about that thief on the cross. He's got a few hours to live. He's been a criminal all his life. Jesus says what? Today you will be with me in paradise. Doesn't matter where you are. God can save anybody. Doesn't matter if you've got a reputation for putting Christians in jail and executing them. When the light shines from heaven and knocks you off the horse, uh, things change. Just ask Paul. How much do we need to know to be a witness? How much did the woman know? Her testimony to the men is only, he told me everything I ever did. Uh, Implication, of course, is he called me down for all my sins. But she didn't say, uh, I read this in Genesis and I recognize that this is the coming Messiah, that this is the one that God promised in Genesis uh, 3 uh, to be the one who would uh, take the, to, would undo the work of Satan. She didn't say that. She probably doesn't know it. What does it take to be a witness? Well, one of the things that you probably need to ask yourself is, has anybody ever said to you, I remember you when you were growing up, what happened to you? I think I probably told you. But years ago, my reputation at Bible conference was not a good one. And years afterwards, when I was, had been converted and I was in seminary, I preached in a church, and one of the young men was there who'd known me growing up, and he brought a girl who had, know, been, who had known me when I was growing up at camp. And he shook my hand, and he said some nice things, I guess. She took my hand, and with a dazed look on, my, on her face, she said, You're in seminary? God can save anybody. He saved me. And the next question is, Who have you been sent to read? Everybody around you. So the women did. Our witness is our testimony. What happened to you? Well, this is what happened. The Holy Spirit got into me, changed my heart, changed my mind, saved my soul, and changed everything I do. Conclusion? 
Do you see how much God loves His people in this report? Here's this woman who has nothing good to say about her and Jesus is prepared to risk everything for her. In fact, He's prepared to go to the cross for her. How much does Jesus love you? That much. There's nothing about in you that's worth loving. There's nothing in me that's worth loving. God is the one who loves. And God is the one who has given himself for us. And that's what I want to leave you with. The woman's an example of it. And what she does is an example of it. But God planned our lives. He planned our witnesses. He planned our sins. He planned our illnesses. He planned our blessings. He planned our jobs. He planned our salvation in advance. Before the world was. And he committed himself to bring that to pass. He did it for each of us specifically. He has a list of every sin you've ever committed. He's got a list of mine. Every sin. And he said, I'm going to die for those sins. I'm going to take them to the cross and I'm going to pay for every one of those sins. That's what the cross was. That's why he said, My God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hell isn't a place where there's fire and brimstone. Hell's a place where God doesn't show any mercy and we can't conceive of what that means. So God said to me, Jay, I'm going to take that place for you. You can't love anybody more than that. You can't love anybody more than being willing to give yourself away to them as if they were more important to you than you are to yourself. And Jesus said that about you if He's called you to Himself. He loves you that much. He's going to discipline your sins, but then someone who loves you is going to discipline you. And He's going to care for you. And He's going to build you up. And He's going to take you to glory with Himself. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we come before you. We look at the woman at the well, and we look at what that showed us about you, and what it showed us about your salvation. And we are in awe. We are in awe because there is nothing that we can do to match it or to make it happen. We have been loved for reasons known only to you, not even to ourselves. So, Father, we are grateful for your love. Teach us to sing your praise and to testify by life and by word to your love in our lives. Lord Jesus, do that for your glory. Amen.